Yo, 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 what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Psychedelic Spotlight Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Walker, and today I'm interviewing the one and only Dave Hodges, founder of Zydor and the Church of Ambrosia, an entheogenic church located in Oakland, California, who are currently embroiled in a high-profile lawsuit in which they are suing the city of Oakland and the Oakland Police Department for the allegedly unconstitutional raid of their Oakland-based mushroom church in August of 2020. We are protected to use our sacrament in any way we choose and to provide it to our members in any way we choose. And there's even court cases that spell that out for different churches. The problem is it really ends up being whoever had the court case then gets the protection. So you kind of have to go through the, the legal battle to get to the point where you actually have some sort of protection that would stop them from coming in and doing another raid. I met Dave at the Oakland Psychedelic Conference presented by Oakland Haife in September of 2022 and had a chance to catch up with him shortly thereafter about the status of this lawsuit and what it means for the entheogenic community. As always, thanks for listening, and please consider rating, reviewing, and sharing the podcast wherever you are listening. And with that being said, let's get this show on the road. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, Dave Hodges, founder of Zydor and Church of Ambrosia. It's good to see you again. So let's cut right to the chase, Dave. You're the founder of an entheogenic church that ritually engages with cannabis and psilocybin mushrooms and also offers a community support system for safe and effective use of these sacraments. And your church, of course, was raided in a high-profile police raid back in August of 2020. And you're now suing the city of Oakland and the Oakland Police Department in a landmark case for violating your First and 14th Amendment rights. I hope I have that correct. Why is this case important? And what legal precedent does Zydor and Church of Ambrosia have, if any, that leads you to believe that you may ultimately be successful in taking up your case in a court of law? Yeah, well, like you said, right into it. You know, the the whole thing with what happened to us here in Oakland, from the day we opened up, we were expecting some form of raid. What we weren't expecting was the local PD. So the whole situation is really interesting when you get into the details of why we were raided, what the warrant said, what they actually did. Regardless, we're a church and it is our religious right to provide our sacrament. And they had absolutely no reason for coming in. The case that we have, you know, so there, the thing with the religious freedom is you actually have to uh, fight for it in federal court. So it's a federal lawsuit against the local police department. And what that means is if slash when we win, there'll be a case directly to local PDs saying, hey, you can't mess up with the church like us. Now, in order to win, uh, the best case to look at is the UDV case, which is an ayahuasca case. And the problem there took seven years and $7 million. So this isn't going to be cheap. This isn't going to be quick, but we're in it for the long run and we're, we're here for the fight. So I'd love it if you can unpack a little bit more about some of the current happenings in this case insofar and, you know, as much as you can disclose without violating anything. But you mentioned the the precedent took seven million dollars in seven years. 
Is this something that is moving at a very glacial bureaucratic pace, as I would imagine? Or are there developments that are ongoing right now? You know, is this, is this picking up speed for you and momentum? This is just getting started and it's going to be a long time. You know, in general, federal courts take a long time and the pandemic and changes because of it are not going to make it go any faster. We're hoping that it'll take less than seven years, but it literally is just getting started. We filed our lawsuit uh, August uh, 12th of this year, and we, we were rated August 13th of 2020. Uh, the significance of that is we waited till literally the day before the statute of limitations would expire, because that's what generally the government likes to do in these sort of situations. If the role was reversed and there were criminal charges, a lot of times they like to make you think you're out at all clear. And then the day before your statute of limitations expired or the month before your statute of limitation expired, then they'll file charges. So, you know, we're really kind of taking a play from their playbook, but really we just filed the lawsuit and it's just getting started. We don't have a court date yet and there's a lot more ahead of us. It's the beginning of it's the starting line. Well, I look forward to following this process and following throughout because obviously it is a landmark case as previously noted. So there are so many different underground communities sharing entheogenic experiences. And despite shifting societal attitudes, despite shifting societal attitudes towards plant and fungi medicines and sacraments, it's still largely illegal to openly conduct yourself and to be public facing with your entheogenic work in most contexts. So even if you're operating in a city where mushrooms are decriminalized, my understanding is that there's currently very little to no legal retail industry and no protection against these sorts of raids on a federal level and apparently on a local level too. So my question to you is, what, what is the reasoning behind wanting to be so public facing and so out and open about the work that Zydor and Church of Ambrosia is doing, which, which ultimately alerted authorities to, to the presence of your church and ergo what led to this police raid and the ensuing legal battle? Well, you know, break a few things down. So, you know, first off, um, any city that has passed decriminalization, it has not actually decriminalized anything. So criminal charges are a state law. So there is, there's actually no way a city can decriminalize anything. What they do is they make it the lowest priority for law enforcement. And there's a big difference between decriminalize, removing criminal charges and uh, setting a priority. A priority gets to be whatever they want it to be. So, you know, it, it, as an example, if you walk up to a cop with an eighth of mushrooms, there's no way they're going to consider that a priority. If you walk up to a cop with two pounds of mushrooms in your hands, you might now be a priority. Um, you know, so there's there's that's the actual foundation of the law that's passed here locally in Oakland and any city that's actually passed uh, the decriminalized nature language. You know, as far as where we're protected, the only protection is at the federal level. So the problem with the protections at the federal level is you have to prove them in court. So technically, 
we do we are protected to use our sacrament in any way we choose and to provide it to our members in any way we choose and there's even court cases that spell that out for different churches the problem is it, it really ends up being whoever had the court case then gets the protection so you kind of have to go through the the legal battle to get to the point where you actually have some sort of protection that would stop them from coming in and doing another raid. Now, when you get into raids and why they happen, uh, a raid is <laughs> an investigation. You know, that's that's how they go determine what's actually happening is is they go and do the raid. In our case, it was a local PD raid and it was really not an honest raid. Um, they the warrant is bad. Uh, the warrant is actually a form letter, and you have to understand the background of what's been happening in Oakland to really understand what was going on. Uh, in Oakland in 2004, the voters of Oakland passed a law that made it the lowest priority for law enforcement for cannabis. Now, ever since that happened, there has been police raids of these what are called Measure Z clubs where the cops go in, they smash everything up, they take all the money, they take all the product, and then they never really file charges. And like I said, this has been happening since 2004. So the group that raided us also raided about four other Measure Z clubs at the, at the same time, but nobody talked about the Measure Z clubs because most of the time what happens with those is they just close their doors, wait a couple months and reopen in the same spot or reopen down the street. And this has literally been going on since 2004. So the warrant in our raid was the same warrant they sent to the other people, but basically said they found us on weed maps and were an illegal dispensary with marijuana felonies happening inside the building. The interesting thing about that is since legalization passed in 2016, there is no there are no marijuana felonies. So the foundation for the warrant that they raided us with is, is undeniably false. And given that they did a undercover or they sent an undercover in the guy that was on the warrant, the fact that they didn't list mushrooms on the warrant really shows how messed up the whole thing is. They obviously knew that we were a church and we were providing both cannabis and mushrooms as sacrament to our members. Uh, the warrant says nothing about a church. It says nothing about mushrooms, which means that the DA who would file criminal charges against us has to look at this and go, whoa, what's going on here? It, it's a very, very bad warrant to begin with. Um, and we were not public facing at the time. At the time, we were pure word of mouth. So we had about 20,000 members, so fairly large, but it was all word of mouth. We were not listed on weed maps. Anytime our address would come up on the internet, we did our best to take it off. We actively made sure we were hard to find. After the raid, you know, there was a bunch of articles and at that point, the cat was out of the bag. But after the raid, we've, we, we're now at over 64,000 members, which kind of technically makes us one of the biggest mega churches in the country. You know, the, the whole thing is a, is a very uh, complex, interesting situation. But 
in the in the scope of how I see it, you know, this was set up from the divine. I, we were meant to go through this process. This was all meant to happen. And when you look at the details of what actually happened with the raid, we couldn't be set up in a better position to try to fight this. Thank you for unpacking that. That helps provide a little bit more context and clarity, right? Because me following this has just been cherry picking through these articles that you mentioned, which there have been quite a few articles coming out. So that's really helpful to frame it for me. So because I've never been to a Church of Ambrosia service, I'm personally curious about the ebb and flow of uh, entheogenic service at the Church of Ambrosia or Zydor. So can you walk us through a little bit, maybe some of the design elements of your church and of the services and how it works? Like, is there a, a music or sound component? Is there a message that's preached at any point? Like if you were in a more traditional religious service, what does a Church of Ambrosia service typically look like? Well, we, we have one uh, on YouTube, um, but the, the big um, hiccup has been the pandemic. You know, prior to the pandemic, Every Sunday at 4.20, I would get on the stage and give a sermon about cannabis, mushrooms, religion, and how they all tied together, along with safety aspects to keep everybody safe and the high-dose work that I do going really deep to try to understand where religion came from in the first place. Um, since the pandemic, getting everybody in a small room to smoke joints together hasn't been the best idea. A little bit of a hiccup there. We are actively looking for a larger church building so that we can get things rolling again. But right now, we just don't have enough space to do what we were doing. But when we were doing the sermons, the goal was to get everybody together. Everybody would smoke cannabis at the same time. And we talked about cannabis, religion, mushrooms, and and how to be safe. Sure. And you're very well known in the psychedelic community for being an advocate or for trip reports in the high dose range, you know, 50 grams plus 20 grams plus. Can we go back to the start of your macrodose experiences and maybe learn a little bit about how you got involved doing macrodose work? Because, you know, microdosing is so huge now. It's so important. And that's a term that I've only heard in the last few years, right? And like, I've always had a propensity towards larger doses myself, but it's never necessarily been in communal context. It's been a lot more like I'm comfortable in this range, right? Like, so I just want to hear about for you, like for, for my example, I've shared this on the podcast many times, but it came down to an issue of logistics, really, when I took my first macrodose because I was 18 years old. I was headed off to college and I didn't have a scale. And I had read Food of the Gods, right? I, I re, you know, Terrence McKenna made a lot of sense to me, what he was writing about. So I go, I got to do a macrodose. Well, I don't know how much five grams is. So I'm going to buy two eighths and I'm going to just eat two eighths because then it's more than five grams, right? And like, that was one of those sort of aha moments where I go, I had had a few smaller, you know, half eighth to an eighth, a few more, but that was the moment when it really clicked for me and where I really sort of entered that visual ecstatic experience. And I go, oh, this is what he's taught. This is what people are talking about when they talk about the high dose range. And obviously since then I've been able to explore a little bit more, but we'd just love to hear about how you first got started in the macrodose range. And is it something that you immediately jumped into or did you work, you know, through numerous experiences over years and incrementally level up to the macrodose realms? You know, I was dragged into it extremely quick. You know, again, everything I look at as a setup from the mushrooms, this is what I need to do. But so we actually opened as a cannabis church in uh, January of 2019. At that point, I had never tried mushrooms. And 
here we are running a cannabis church in Oakland and all of a sudden Oakland passes the lowest priority for law enforcement for all entheogenic plants. Uh, after reading the law, I took this as a sign that we needed to start providing more. And the thing that I had been drawn to for a long time, and really the only thing safe for people to do and have their own experience was the mushroom. But before we could provide it at the church, I had to understand it. And, you know, that's, that's where the journey started. Uh, I never expected to end up doing 30 grams of mushrooms or being known for high dose work. Uh, I started at two grams, had the good experience that everybody has. My hands looked a little funny. Everything was a little wiggly. Um, you know, I saw a little bit of stuff, but here I was the leader of the church. So I knew I had to do the five gram heroic dose that Terrence McKenna talked about. And I did the five gram heroic dose, very intense experience. Um, but I came out in a loop and I must've said to myself a hundred times, you need to learn how to breathe and you need to do more mushrooms just over and over. You need to learn how to breathe and you need to do more mushrooms. After I sobered up, I was like, what do you fucking know? Mushrooms I'm breathing right now. Uh, something I do every day, but knowing that the LD 50 was somewhere around five pounds, I knew there wasn't any danger in trying more. So a couple weeks later, letting my tolerance clear out, I did 10 grams of mushrooms. And this is where things started getting weird. Uh, I came out in the exact same loop. You need to learn how to breathe and you need to do more mushrooms. Again, must have said it to myself a hundred times. Uh, you know, th this was a very intense experience, but uh, the message that I got afterwards was exactly the same. So this time I decided to Google how to breathe. And if you Google how to breathe, you'll find a TED talk and you'll find multiple doctors talking about how as a society, we've forgotten how to breathe. And what they're talking about is because we're all sitting down at desks and we're concerned about the size of our bellies, we've stopped breathing with a diaphragm, which is the muscle that we have to breathe with, and instead are breathing with the upper halves of our body. And when you look at uh, the TED Talk, they, they ask everybody to take a deep breath. You'll see the whole audience like lean up, breathe in with the upper halves of our body. Well, the problem with this is we have a new illness happening in the elderly where their diaphragms have begun to atrophy. And because of, they've been using their back muscles, they're now having back problems and breathing problems simply because their entire life, they weren't using the muscle they have to breathe with. And like I said, this is where things got really weird because I was one of those people. So the question came up to me, how did I know that I didn't know how to breathe? Because after the first time, I clearly thought I knew how to breathe. I, I was breathing right then. And, you know, I, I didn't think there was any problem with it. But when I actually did the research, the fact is I was physically breathing wrong. So how did I know that I didn't know how to breathe? And there's two possibilities that I talk about. And to me, they're both true. One is that something deep inside myself was now able to clearly communicate with me. Hey, dude, you need to do this. You're doing this wrong. Um, the other is that there are actually guides on the other side. And they knew this was the first lesson that I needed to learn before I moved forward. So, uh, you know, it took me about six months to learn how to breathe again. But once I was aware that was that was something that I need to work on, 
I followed the other part of the advice and did more mushrooms. This time I did 15 grams. Um, you know, and I, I definitely recommend people have sitters when they do this sort of work. Um, but I had no sitter. This was just by myself, 15 grams. Uh, this is the first time I actually broke through and saw entities on the other side. I met some entities that told me why I existed, why I was, uh, why I'd gone through everything I'd gone through and what they needed me for. Um, it, it, it was an experience that I could, I, I, beyond anything I could ever imagine because it all made sense. You know, basically they told me all the legal battles that you had been through for cannabis. This was all getting you ready for what you need to do next for us. And you're somebody that can understand us and we need you. But out of that experience, I came out in another loop this time. There is more knowledge to spread and do more mushrooms. Well, at this point, I just done 15 grams of mushrooms. The most I had ever heard of anybody doing was five. I was a little freaked out being told that I need to do more mushrooms. So I started Googling high dose mushrooms. And this is where I came across the late Kalindi E. Kalindi was an amazing person who did high dose work between 30 to 50 grams for over 40 years before he passed away. Um, unfortunately, we lost him at the beginning of the pandemic due to COVID. But it turned out Kalindi was speaking at an event in Portland the next weekend, and I had the resources to go. So I go, I walk in the door, registration desk is to my right, and standing right in front of me is Kalindi. And he's the first person to interact with me, and he thinks he recognizes me. So, you know, when we talk about, like, alignment and synergy and those sort of things. I mean, this was beyond anything I could have expected. I'd literally flown here to meet this man. And he was the first person to interact with me. And he thinks he already knows me. It, it a great conference. I really need to be there. It was all about entheogens and religious work with them. Absolutely where I needed to be. But if I hadn't met Kalindi at that time, I don't know if I would have continued on the path. Um, you know, 15 grams of mushrooms is a lot of mushrooms and following the advice from myself slash things coming from the other side, being told to take more was pretty overwhelming until I met Kalindi, who had been doing this sort of work for 40 years and going around talking about it. Um, from there, I had a couple more experiences. My next one was a 20 gram. And then the highest dose I've actually ever done was a 30 gram. Um, getting different messages, experiencing entities on the other side. Once I hit the 15 gram point, I reached a place I call breaking through. And that's where you can not only see, but physically interact with entities on the other side. The work that I do today is generally between 15 to 25 grams. And I'll do that, you know, four to six times a year, depending on what availability I have to to actually do them it's it's you know the, these aren't the sort of thing that you do on a whim they're not the sort of thing you do in public they're not the sort of thing that you do with groups even this is you are by yourself with a bed in a bathroom you don't want to take 15 20 grams when you're out in nature uh, a lot of times you can leave your body 
A lot of times people strip off their clothes. So stripping off your clothes and leaving your body in the middle of the forest, you don't know what's going to be nibbling on it when you come back to it. So the, the importance, the important thing about doing this work is that you're in a safe environment with a bed and a bathroom nearby. But like I said, when I started this, I never imagined really within the first two months of ever trying mushrooms, I went from two grams to 30 grams in a single dose. That's phenomenal and extraordinary. And it also strangely fits the narrative that you have going on. So, you know, I'd love to talk about your robe because the robe is such an integral part of your public persona. And a lot of people have commented on and recognized the cannabis robe that you have, which if anybody's listening and hasn't seen it, just Google Dave Hodges robe and something should pop up. And I'll pop a photo up in my stories when we release this episode. So I'm something of a robe collector myself, Dave. And I've got robes from all over the world. I've got a silk robe I bought at the silk market in Beijing, China. I've got a very psychedelic multicolored dream coat that I bought in Istanbul. I've got a traditional Japanese samurai robe that I wear in some of my satire videos, a few others, but none of them have cannabis decor on them, unfortunately. And I understand that the robe that you wear so often actually serves more than a strictly ornamental purpose. So what's the story behind the robe? Where did it come from? And why do you wear that robe as part of your public persona? Well, um, the, the robe was actually made by a member of our church who makes amazing clothing. Uh, his, his Instagram, you can find him at uh, King's Light Up Coats. And he's an amazing person. I first met him out at Burning Man. He makes these amazing Burning Man coats, uh, but he became a member of the church. And when talking, he said he really wanted to do something. And I gave him free reign to design whatever he wanted. And what he came back with was, I mean, if when, when you see it in person, it is an amazing piece of work. Um, extremely high quality. The the filigree and the little decorations on it, uh, a lot of them came from Rome, from where they make the the Pope's robes and, and ceremonial garb. And it's not just cannabis. There's little mushrooms on it. You just have to look and, and find them. They're, they're growing out of different little pieces in the, in the robe. But it, it's, you know, it, it started as me knowing that we, I needed some sort of ceremonial garb to just complete the whole uh, aspect of the religion. And I gave him full reign to design whatever he want. And he came back with something that is beyond amazing. I mean, it's, it's extremely high quality and it <laughs> was meant to be. It's phenomenal. I can attest. I've seen it in person and I am definitely jealous of this robe. So I've got, you got my gears grinding about how I'm going to get something cool like that to add to my collection. So I would love to hear about your protocol when you're on a mushroom trip, because everybody is a little bit different the way they approach things. And one thing that people split opinions on is cannabis use during a mushroom experience. So I'd love to hear about is cannabis use a part of your mushroom experiences? And do you have particular times throughout the experience when you'll smoke? Like for example, when the peak starts hitting, is that a time when maybe, it, you know, you roll one up or maybe it's after the intense part of the trip subsides and you start to, you know, ground yourself a little bit. Some people like to smoke then. I personally no longer consume cannabis during a trip. I used to frequently, but for whatever reason in my life, the physiology, my neurochemistry, this and that have changed to the point where I always felt like 
or I currently feel if I were to smoke during a trip, it sort of like derails me from my thought process and my experience. And obviously everybody's extremely different. So I would love to hear from you. Is that, is cannabis something that you actively incorporate into your mushroom trips? Absolutely. But I, I mainly use it before and after the work I do with the high dose work, you, you know, you, you can barely move, you know, much less roll up a joint or, you know, try to smoke anything. I, at the, at the lower levels in the two grams to an eighth, you know, that's, that's possible. But once you hit 15 grams, it's very hard and you definitely don't see any point in doing it during the ceremony. Before the ceremony, it kind of helps me clear my brain and just focus on what intent that I'm going with. And then after the ceremony, it helps me just to take a step back and think about everything that I just experienced. So cannabis is a, a very important tool in what I do, but it's it's very rarely during the ceremony. You know, again, I, I focus mainly on high dose work. There's a lot of different ways you can use mushrooms in a lot of different ceremonies. I, I'm not saying that anybody has to do what we do, but this is... This is a very private session between you and your soul. And uh, the church actually has a project we call God Sitters, where we help people do this high dose work. We provide a sitting service for them. But the goal of the sitter is not to be around you. You know, the, you're, you have a, a safe place, a bed and a bathroom right next to each other. And the sitters are upstairs. We're just listening for anything going wrong and dealing with any human things that you can't deal with. You definitely don't want to be answering the front door on 15 or 20 grams of mushrooms. And, you know, if we hear you vomit or we hear something like that, we'll run down and just make sure you're okay and swap out the bowl just so you're not having a ceremony next to a pool of vomit, you know. Uh, but really, the goal of the sitter is to stay out of your way, but just to provide that little extra blanket so you know that, uh, if the house catches fire, if anything happens, you're going to be safe. We're going to make sure we get you out of there. But we're there to do the human things that you can't do. Um, the ceremony itself, we have you fast for 48 hours before, at least at least 24 hours, ideally 48 hours. And the, the goal there is just the less shit in you, the less shit is going to come out of you. Unfortunately, anytime somebody doesn't do that... Uh, we can tell right away we're seeing their lunch fairly quickly after they drink the tea. But as long as you fast right, you won't have any of those problems. But they drink the tea, they lay down. The ceremony itself lasts uh, three to four hours. And when they're done, they come back up and we talk about what just happened to them. We also do audio recording during the ceremony because a lot of times people will say things or have conversations with different entities that... Uh, they want to remember later, but they can't. So having the audio recording lets them go back through the audio and kind of relive some of the things that they went through in these high dose experiences. But that's that's basically how we do the ceremony. The big thing is, you know, with the high dose work is there's no rush. You know, you're you're not this isn't you're not showing off. This isn't a race. You, just because you hear somebody did 30 grams of mushrooms doesn't mean that you should just do 30 grams of mushrooms. There, there's a huge importance to working your way up. Sounds like you may have gone a little faster than you should by doing two eighths at the same time, but 
Not necessarily. I mean, it really all depends on where you are and what you can handle. But generally, what we say is start at the five gram heroic dose and then increase by two grams at a time as you feel comfortable, always with a sitter until you feel comfortable without a sitter. Personally, I started all of my work without a sitter. I didn't have a sitter until 30 grams, but before that, I was just by myself in my bedroom taking 15, 20 grams of mushrooms. I was fine, but I definitely don't recommend people do it. Also, my story, I increased by five grams at a time. I was on a very special path. The mushrooms had to get me up to speed really quick um, for a couple reasons. But that the key is not to push yourself. If you don't feel comfortable taking more, then don't. Do the same dose again and just slowly work your way up. Each time, letting your tolerance clear out. That's the other thing that people don't understand. This is not we're not taking 30 grams of mushrooms because we have a tolerance. In fact, the the goal of this work is to separate it by at least two to four weeks. And really, the more time, the better, where you're not doing any mushrooms. So when you go into this 15, 20, 30 gram experience, you're going from a zero point all the way to where you're trying to go. You know, it, it's it's definitely different work. The The other big tip for anybody who feels drawn to this sort of work. And we have a lot of information on our website and on YouTube if anybody's really interested. But the other big tip is mushrooms vary in strength a lot. So it's really good to get a larger amount of mushrooms so that you can work with the same mushrooms as you work your way up. As long as you store them in an airtight, cool, dark place, they should last for about a year. So getting you know, getting two ounces just so you have uh, enough mushrooms to consistently work with the same one through a few different doses is a really good idea. Sure. That was always my my play as I was fortunate enough to have access to bulk mushrooms while attending the University of San Francisco. So I'd buy a quarter pound at a time and have the same consistency, right? The same batch and the way I operate with everything is like once I find someone who's really professional, trustworthy and good at what they do, I just stick with them. So I had the same mushroom connection, you know, for like three years until he ended up moving away. And then I learned how to cultivate and, you know, tapped into other cultivators. But that was something I realized, like uh, so many people want these things. But I come from a position where, you know, when I was growing up and you wanted them, you couldn't always find them. So it became like, all right, if they're around, let's stack up and let's hold on to these things. And I was always drawn towards just kind of having them available as opposed to, you know, feeling called to provide them from for a friend or for myself and not having access to them. So I echo what you're saying about, you know, picking up and hanging on to the same batch. Now, we got to talk about this unfolding burgeoning psilocybin mushroom industry. And it's a weird term to use. And it's something I've been seeing a lot of, right? I've been out to a few of these conferences. We met in Oakland. I was out in Las Vegas. I was out in Los Angeles, this and that and the other. They're popping up all over the place. And I've been absolutely flabbergasted to see how developed a lot of the product landscape is, where I come from the background of, you know, just having seen dried fruits my whole life. And I've been out to Amsterdam, you know, I may have seen mushroom tea in a package out there, but all of a sudden now, I'm getting people passing me off these like fully branded mushroom chocolates, right? I, I, I saw, 
I hit a psilocybin vape pen, you know, just all these things I never imagined that I would see. And it's causing a lot of infighting, a lot of debate, a lot of sort of controversy within the psychedelic community about the future of where all this goes. Because do we want to see a psilocybin mushroom industry in retail spaces, much the same way cannabis has been productized and commercialized? Or is it something that, you know, we want to push back against and just limit it to more sacramental religious use, if you will. And, you know, people conflate sometimes when I have a perspective, I may publicly write about that. I think this industry is already here. Not that I support everything necessarily, but that I think it's way more developed than a lot of people recognize. And it takes sort of being in sort of, you know, Denver or, or San Francisco, et cetera, a lot of times to see that this product landscape and the companies developing them, they're already here. So I've just been trying to engage more of our guests on the podcast about where you see this whole quote, psilocybin mushroom industry going and what are some of the practical considerations we have to bear in mind as we move forward together in this strange, brave new world of mainstreamed entheogen and mushroom use. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and before I get too far into it, you know, one, one of my big concerns about it is a lot of people are doing stuff that there isn't really legal protection for. So, you know, if, for instance, here in Oakland, uh, Santa Cruz, San Francisco, really any city, it's the lowest priority for law enforcement. It is still criminal to work with mushrooms, you know, it's, it, it's, or any entheogenic plant. Um, so you, there, there is a lot of, uh, people, building companies and building brands right now and really pushing the limits without any real legal protection. You know, the, the closest thing there is and is in Oregon where everything is decriminalized, that the criminal penalties are actually removed, but then the sales aspect is only in therapeutic, um, therapeutic setups. So, you know, with without without the ability for people to actually take any of the mushrooms home. So if you're looking at the legal landscape, um, there's only one state that has anything close. And it's not the sort of thing. I mean, un unfortunately, it's not the sort of thing where you're going to have a retail operation where people can get a chocolate bar and take it home. So given that that's the landscape, um, how far people have already gone with it personally scares me. Um, for them, you know, we're, we take a different approach because we're really looking at this as a sacrament. And in the religious aspects, there is legal protection, at least at a federal level. Um, but any other context, there really isn't. So, you know, when I see these these companies people are setting up to have branded chocolate bars and they're telling me that they're, you know, already working with thousands of chocolate bars a month. Um, you know, that's all going to illegal market. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I feel for these people because I know that they want, they want to do the right thing and they believe in this stuff, but I worry that when there's too much fl money flowing around. People are going to get some criminal charges that they don't really want. Um, as far as where things could go and should go, I, I'm one of the people that believe in everything. 
You know, I, I would love to see a pharmaceutical play where there was something that your doctor could prescribe you. At the same time, I'd love to see uh, a retail operation where people could just go in and and get whatever they want to use in any sort of way possible. Um, but, you know, where we really stand and our ground is the religious aspects of these and making sure that people have access to these very important sacraments to connect with themselves and what exists beyond this life. Um, I don't see it as a situation where it needs to be either or in any way, shape or form. Um, in fact, I kind of look at it as if the pharmaceuticals can get to the point where their doctors can be prescribing some psilocybin, the likelihood that people will get more drawn to the work that we do and really try to understand their soul, what they are outside of this body, what God actually is, where religion came from. Um, the more people exposed to psilocybin, the more people there are likelihood there's likelihood that they will go deeper into these realms and try to understand more. Sure. And I've come to a position where I've been able to meet a lot of these pharmaceutical and executive types in person and via the podcast where I'm encouraging conversation across party lines. And that's something I've noticed a breakdown in, in the general discourse is there's a lot of echo chambers. There's a lot of people who want things to work a certain way. And, you know, they, it's us versus them. And I don't really see any future opportunity there. I, I see a lot more opportunity for dialogue, for, you know, um, being diplomatic across party lines, if you will. And in that same, in that context, when I have an opportunity to speak with people who represent these major companies, I'm not going in there hellfire, you know, trying to tell them that they're, you know, you're fucking this up for the rest of us. Like, that's not really my MO. It's more like, I want to get some constructive dialogue going. I want to learn from them. And is it possible that there could be a hybridized approach where, believe it or not, for anybody listening, some of these folks who are in power and in control of large psychedelics companies, they want to be philanthropists. They want to help. And, you know, it, it tends to be painted as like an us versus them thing. Like you either have all of the legacy growers, all of the underground black market growers. And if you cross that party line, then you're a sellout and you're on their side. And I personally don't see it like that. I think that there's a lot more nuance to it and that we're going to have a lot of decisions to make collectively. So why don't we start talking to each other and start you know, platforming more of these dialogues? So that's kind of where I'm coming from. So let's loop back to. Absolutely. Let's loop back. to. Well, well just real quick, I, I want to real quick. I just want to point out there is an us versus them. It's. Everybody who wants psilocybin in any way, shape, or form, and the police and the narcotics officers and the whole industry around that that doesn't want anything to be legal. So there is an us versus them. The problem is we're too busy fighting each other to really focus our energy on the real fight. And the real fight this is a military-like machine that literally has every weapon they could possibly imagine. They have all the connections in all the political realms and will bust down your doors and point guns at everybody like they did at our church. So there is an us versus them, but we're on the wrong the us versus them. It, it's we, we need to stop fighting, you know, pharmaceuticals versus storefronts versus uh, religious spiritual use. And really understand that we're, regardless of where we fall in those three, 
we're on one side of the war and there are people on the other side of the war and they're very serious about keeping this war going. So, you know, there isn't us versus them, but we really need to all come together and understand where, who is us because we're all one. And the people on the other side want to see all of us go to jail. Cool. Thanks for the clarification. So I would love to loop back right now and just talk about your next steps in your legal battle that's just unfolded. And you're prepared to commit a substantial amount of time, as long as it will take, a substantial amount of resources, as much as it will cost. But I would just be curious to kind of end on that note of where where does that process stand right now? And you know, what are some things, tangible steps that you can take and that people listening and people in the community can take if they feel called to support your ongoing legal battle? Well, unfortunately, there's nothing happening right now. So uh, we, we are looking for support from people. Uh, fortunately, we do have 63 or 64,000 members right now. So we're we're fairly solid on um, what it's going to take to get us through the court process. Uh, there is something big that uh, we're getting prepared to put out there. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, I don't have the information to send people to yet. But we we need a larger building. You know, at this point, we we need a place where we can gather at least 500, ideally a thousand people together and start the sermons again. So in the next uh, couple months, we're going to be doing a large campaign and probably a GoFundMe to try to help gather the money to buy a new building. Um, and one of the important aspects of what we're doing and how we're going to be doing that is we want to make sure that the money is not coming from any of the activity that we're doing. And just because we, <laughs> we know the war on drugs and if there's any way the building is purchased with what the other side will consider drug money, um, the likelihood that we lose our forever home is, is something that we don't want to do. So we, we are going to be doing a large fundraiser, to try to gather enough money to buy a large building for the church. And that, that would be the biggest thing people can do to help us. Um, unfortunately, all the details are not together for that yet, but just keep an eye out. Um, also, if anybody wants to reach out to me directly, uh, Instagram is the best at Dave hemp and anything with high dose work or any support that anybody has for us. I'm, I'm there if they want to reach out. Wonderful. Dave Hodges, founder of Zydor and Church of Ambrosia. Thank you very much sincerely for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure hosting you today and learning more about your work in this space. Yeah, thanks for having me.